Welcome, welcome. You're listening to our podcast, Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. My name is Mark. I'm a registered massage therapist, registered kinesiologist here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And we have a really cool guest sitting in the Captain Kirk chair today. We played a lot of LinkedIn chat tag to make this happen and we are finally here janet is sitting in the captain kirk chair amanda is on the couch amanda why don't you do what you do hey everyone it's amanda registered massage therapist in toronto and i'm super excited because we're talking about my favorite topic ever which is food me oh (laughs) sure and you (laughs) you know what not everyone we've talked about on the podcast before and if you have been listening you know that mark is not a food guy but i am food obsessed Uh, Not in a bad way. I'm not obsessed with counting calories or nutrients or whatever. I just really genuinely enjoy food. And I always wanted my kids to be that way. So when Mark told me what you do, I was like, yes, it's like you found my soulmate. So uh, And hopefully be the beginning of something. (laughs) Yes. So Janet uh, Nizan is here. She's the founder of Rainbow Plate. And I'm going to let Janet tell you guys what that is. So thank you for coming in and hanging out with us today. And thank you for inviting me and I'm so thrilled to be here with you. Uh, Rainbow Plate is an organization that I founded about seven years ago. And put simply, the, the mandate, the mission of Rainbow Plate is to make healthy eating simple and to make it fun. Uh, what, what we do is reach children and all the adults who influence children. And we have been offering directly to children um, a whole range of interactive, engaging uh, educational programs, food education programs uh, that expose children to lots of healthy foods and really ultimately work towards inspiring kids to cultivate a happy and healthy relationship with food. Okay, awesome. So how young do you start working with kids? We've worked with children starting at around toddler age. Okay. And we've worked right up to high school. In fact, we've worked over the years with people um, much older than just children. We've worked even all the way with uh, adults ranging to seniors. And I guess at the early stage, I should mention that in fact, we're currently pivoting. We have been offering all these direct programs and we've in fact pivoted recently to a new model, which we'll we'll get into, where we're capturing all of the essence of our amazing programs and enabling that to reach people much, much farther afield than we could reach by delivering directly. So we're now actually working to share our expertise and our experience um, through resources and educational programs for professionals and adults, like parents and caregivers. Which I think is super important because who are babies and toddlers learning from, right? The first person that's teaching them about food is parents. And in my experience, having two really young kids, moms especially get really anxious about food. There's this obsession with wanting your kid to eat everything and eat healthy and, um, I think some people are going a little bit extreme with it to the point of, you know, there has to be this many vegetables in a day and this many fruits and, you know, bargaining with their kids at mealtimes and fighting with them and, you know, trying to hide veggies in different sauces and things. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I couldn't agree more. And I'm also, I mean, as part of my my credentials, I'm a mom. I have three kids. Uh, I'm at a different stage of the game than you. My kids are all adults and uh, one is back living at home after being away at university, but they are on their own. And so I'm sort of, I bring to the work that I do in addition to my academic and professional background, some real life experience, which is really understanding, you know, that journey of raising kids. And I, I think you're right. I know from experience that 
parents, we all want our children to be healthy. We all want mm-hmm. them to to grow up, and and it's very hard to miss all the media, the, the way that we're being bombarded right now in the media with all the the, the scary news about obesity statistics mm-hmm. and disease. And as professionals and who have health training, all of us here, we know the connection between what we eat and and how our bodies will function down the road. And so it's it's very common to see people doing some of those things that you mentioned. But I, I also think it's important to acknowledge that that's all coming from a very good place with the best mm-hmm. of intentions, but that in fact, sometimes it backfires. And and so much of what Rainbow Plate ha- is about and has always been about is helping people to cut through the confusion. It's really, it's healthy eating made simple. That's the tagline because there's so much information out there and, right. and it's very over, it's overwhelming for the professionals. So it's, it's not surprising that for the average parent who might not come from a health background, it's it's just mind-boggling to figure out what to make sense. Are we, should we be eating high carb, low carb, protein, not, is dairy good, is dairy bad, are eggs going to kill us, are eggs the best source of protein? And <laughs> it's it's overwhelming. And that was really where Rainbow Plate came from, was this notion of cutting through that for people, helping them to understand what they need to focus on and helping people to be able to put that into practice. Absolutely. And that's, before we get into how the program works, that's exactly what I loved about your website when I looked at it was just the tagline of healthy eating made simple because there is so much controversy. Like you said, eggs are good. Eggs are bad. I even saw something recently posted on social media that was like, don't eat this. And it was a picture of an avocado. But yet you go to another website and it's like, eat avocados, healthy fats don't eat avocados, too much fat. There's, you know, now there's all of these diets. You know, we had somebody on talking about the keto diet. We've talked about intermittent fasting. We've all of these different things. When I think the simplest thing to remember is if you're eating a variety of whole real foods, not processed stuff, you're fine. Yeah, and there doesn't exa- need to be so many rules. Exactly. And that's exactly where Rainbow Plate came from. In fact, there is a brief version of the story on the website, uh, but it's true. I mean, I was, as, as Mark knows, I was teaching in, in a very academic instructor at uh, at the massage therapy college. Uh, but my original background was in nutritional science. That's what I studied in university. And and back in those days, that was my original vision for what I wanted to do. Uh, I was an undergrad, you know, hardcore science at U of T, nutritional science, but I knew I didn't really want to, you know, be in a hospital uh, preparing clinical diets and all the rest of it. I had this vision of wanting to do something inspiring and engaging around food and nutrition. Fast forward through a whole lot of years and some hilarious experiences, and I'm a lecturer at, at the college teaching nutritional science, among other subjects, and I went off to a conference in the U.S. Uh, with this sole vision of making sure my nutrition you know, scientific knowledge was up to date and and that I was up on all the latest developments and research. And it was really at that conference, this was 2006, I had that light bulb moment because I remember saying, okay, number one, check the box. Yes, I'm, I'm up to date. What I'm hearing in the research, I've already heard that. My skills are, are, are current. But I remember stepping back and saying, oh my goodness, there's really nothing new. You know, I graduated with my degree in nutrition in the late 80s or mid 80s, actually. And truthfully, yes, at a micro level, I mean, there's been research, we know at a molecular level, this happens this way, or there's some fine tuning and so on. But just like you said, if you step back and you say, okay, to nourish a human body well, a child, an adult, really, if you want to get the big picture, 
It's not rocket science. It's eating a variety of whole, mostly unprocessed foods. It's a variety, you know, heavy, heavy on the plants and whole grains and so on. And it hasn't changed. That's still the messaging that was, you know, front of mind back when I graduated. But oh my goodness, if you look at our population, we have this explosion, this exponential flooding of information and controversy and, and recommendations and crazy diets and gurus and all of the above. And so there's so much nutrition, everything out there. And yet, if you look at the stats on how we're doing as a population, there's a huge disconnect because we're mm. getting worse. And that was really, this was 2006. I remember saying, okay, this is the issue. And also, we're not suffering from a lack of information. What we're suffering from is this disconnect in people being able to implement it. And the other thing that hit me that day at the conference was we need to start with kids. Because if we are inspiring children and, and, and finding this way of engaging children to eat this way from an early age, not because someone's standing over them with a baseball bat making it happen, <laughs> but because they just love eating and it's natural and it's part of their lives. And if people live with that kind of a lifestyle and that kind of a dietary pattern for their lives, we have a less of a chance of needing to mop them up when they've developed cardiovascular disease or diabetes or cancer down the road. And, mm -hmm. and that was really the moment that Rainbow Plate was born. Um, and so that's, I, don't know, I guess I rambled a bit, but no, but that's, that's perfect. Sort of a story. You gave us the history. Yeah. And, and that, but just exactly as you said, it's not rocket science. And, and there is this tendency of people running down the direction of hearing the latest trend or fad or nutrient or quote superfood, which is another whole issue or supplement. People are very quick to run down the path of one specific approach or thing when in fact the science still comes back over and over and over again to saying it's just the overall pattern of the way you eat that ultimately is most important and P.S. this general pattern of eating mostly whole foods mostly fruits and vegetables not too much of the other stuff it's still what what the science supports as being the healthiest way of eating. Since I am like so obsessed with food and I could talk to you all day about it, <laughs> we've gave, given us the history. Can you tell us a, a little bit about how the programs work then? What yeah. exactly do you do? How do you implement this? Yep. So, so what we have been doing, and I think it's important to get that context before I kind of explain where we're going now. So historically, um, and the core group that we've worked with the most, which the research actually supports as being that magical age where you can really influence a child's relationship with food for life. So we've worked a lot with kids in sort of the grade one, kindergarten, preschool age. Okay, um, so like my kids. Yeah, Okay. Like, because that, I mean, we have, there's so much capacity to influence anyone's relationship with food, but I've seen it happen. And P.S., the research backs up that this early year's time frame is so pivotal in terms of making, making a lasting impact. Um, and in a general sense, most of what our programs do is first and foremost, approach things in a relaxed and fun and positive way mm -hmm. and we use rainbows as as kind of the the theme that that is very engaging for children um the name rainbow plate is about literally inspiring people to add color to their plates color in the form of fruits and vegetables and and just piece of backstory that is also something that the research is very clearly behind the benefits of eating lots of colorful fruits mm -hmm. and veg so a program typically you know what we have been doing are really in class field trip type experiences 90 minute workshops the rainbow team shows up we have rainbow hoodies we're decked out in rainbow everything I did see that I love them thank you it was, <laughs> there's a there's a cool backstory about the rainbow hoodies which I can tell you after too um, but it's like a fun engagement 
engaging experience that comes into a classroom. We've decorated the room with rainbows. We do an opening piece where we talk about rainbows and eating rainbows. And we essentially pivot around to this notion, you know, because when you ask kids about eating, can you eat a rainbow? Of course, the first thing they think of is Skittles and, you know, icing and sprinkles and Fruit Loops. And we, we do have a conversation about the different kinds of ways we can, the different ways we can eat rainbows and, and the difference between eating a rainbow of sugary processed foods versus fruits and vegetables. And again, one of the, um, one of the taglines, I guess, that Rainbow Plate has used for years is expose and explore, don't preach. And so we don't harp on the fact that, that, well, these kind of rainbows are better for your body because of vitamins and minerals. Uh-uh. What we do is we literally dramatically unveil a, a big actual rainbow of fruits and vegetables and the gasps and the wow reaction from children. Because it looks so pretty. Even the adults in the room, whenever we do it, you literally, we, we, we do this whole build up and we lift up the cover and there's this incredible rainbow of real fruits and vegetables and you can hear a pin drop. The kids just go, wow, it's just inspiring. And so what we do is we, we get the kids excited about this concept of exploring and experience all, experiencing all the amazing qualities of a rainbow of fruits and vegetables. We teach them this notion of making your plate into a rainbow plate whenever you eat. And we teach them our little rhyme that I coined back in 2006 when I first had the idea. And the rhyme is rainbow plate, rainbow plate, tell me the colors that you ate. And we sort of build that concept and we, we sort of ex explain that and, and set the stage. And then really the core of the workshop experience, which is really the rest, you know, almost an hour's time, is giving children an opportunity to explore and experience a full rainbow of fruits and vegetables. So we set the room up in five rainbow color stations. We have three different fruits or and or vegetables in each color prepared for the kids to explore with all of their senses. We, we have adults, um, we get parent volunteers and teachers to help us so the kids are in small groups. And really what it is in, in the professional language, it's sensory-based experience. Mm -hmm. It's sensory exploration of foods. And the big ingredient that we were remove from the equation is pressure. There is absolutely no requirement, expectation, right. or pressure to eat a single thing. So you're just letting them explore. They can try anything they want, but there's no, like, you have to try exactly. one of each color. Just exactly. go check out In the In fact, food. we very deliberately, we coach all the adults who are working with us. We have, you know, team members who work with us, uh, but all the adults who volunteer to support the experience, we sit down with them ahead of time, and we make sure that they get that message loud and clear that, in fact, we don't we do not want you to push anyone to even touch or try or taste or eat a thing the magical thing that always happens is kids will mm -hmm. um, because they're so engaged with that experience and kids end up tasting and exploring pretty much most of those 15 different foods. What they do is they, they get a rainbow plate as they're going through the different stations. It has that rhyme on it and it's basically, it's a, it's a Chinette plate with a sticker with the rhyme on it. Yeah. And as they've, you know, they spend time at each of the color stations, they, they sort of mark that experience. They solidify that by putting a sticker in that color on their plate. And we have bingo stamp. And so they're creating essentially this little keepsake plate, which by the time they've been through all the five stations has all the colors of the rainbow on it. We give them a magnet to put on the back and that goes home to go up on, you know, a magnet board or fridge to, to really. And they're so excited to tell you all the colors that they, they ate. They are so excited. Yeah. And, and we also support that again, as you said, parents, of course, the biggest influence on the way a child will eat. And so we have uh, a piece that goes home with the children to the parents and it says, here's 
what we did today. Your child was in this experience. Here was the messaging. Here were the key ingredients in that experience that made it so positive. We even go so far as to recommend to parents, here are some things to ask your child. Tell me about all the foods you explore. Tell me. But but the big thing that we do both in the workshop experience and we recommend to parents is don't even ask if they liked it. Mm-hmm. Don't even... Don't even focus on that. Just focus on the exploration and the mm-hmm. engagement and the excitement. Because when you ask a child, you know, is it thumbs up or down or did you like it or not? Kids will slot foods in, you know, I don't like peppers or, or I do like this or that. But if, if a child makes sort of one of those decisions about a particular food, that can be really hard to move past yep. in the future. And so we don't even go there as much as possible. Um, and so essentially what we're doing is giving children the capacity to first and foremost be comfortable around all these foods, which we know are the ones that nourish healthy bodies. We're giving them a really positive experience with those foods, not because of sort of disconnected attributes like nutrients and nutrition, Mm -hmm. but because of the sensory properties. And in the end, I happen to believe that we eat what we like, children and adults. Right. and, And we like what we know and what we're exposed to. Um, so it's really about giving kids this really positive experience to be exposed to the kinds of foods that we want them to develop connections with. Absolutely. And everything you're saying, I mean, we talked off mic about the fact that just instinctively I, I had been doing some of these things with my kids so because good. I, like I said, I didn't want to be the mom that had to cook three or four meals at you. dinner. I didn't want to fight with my kids. Yeah. I I remember when I was a kid, one thing we always did is we always ate dinner together. Good I know you. when Mark and I first got together, um, that was not... A habit at their house. Mm-hmm. His mom is an amazing cook and she would cook food and just leave it out and the boys could come and go as they mm-hmm. pleased. And all day there was like awesome home cooked food there. My mom was quite different. She actually despises cooking, oh. but... But and she would do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, just cooking wasn't her thing. She doesn't like doing it. But I mean, she obviously would. But we ate every meal together. Mm-hmm. And we would all sit at the table. We'd have the radio on, not the TV. And we'd all just be talking. And that was one thing I had said to Mark that I have a really good memory of that. And I want my kids to enjoy mealtime. I don't want to be fighting. Okay. I don't want to be forcing them to eat something. So I started doing exactly that where I would just give them a whole bunch of different things on their plate. If they ate any of it, I was happy. Mm-hmm. I wasn't saying, you know, you got to try this, you got to try this. You know, there was no bargaining. I would just put like maybe three or four different types of vegetables on their plate and they would eat something. Yep. And sometimes that meant that they might only eat the bread that night. And that was okay because mm-hmm. that was just that night. The next night they'd get all the fruits and vegetables again and maybe they would try something else. I know just recently my older daughter who always told me, because you were just saying it's really hard to come away from, I don't like something, mm-hmm. which it is. We would always say, okay, you don't like it right now. Exactly. And so just recently we did a homemade pizza at home. I like to do a lot of really interactive meals Amazing. with them Amazing. because again, if they made it, they're going to eat it. Exactly. My older daughter used to say she hates lasagna. Well, guess what? When she made the lasagna, she ate the lasagna and she was so excited to say, daddy, I made you dinner. I made you lasagna. Yeah. So uh, yeah, recently we did pizza and I had on my 
plate of vegetables in the center of the table, there was mushrooms and she had always disliked mushrooms. And she reached to put some mushrooms on her pizza. And I said, oh, you're putting mushrooms on your pizza. She's like, well, maybe I'll like them now. I'm like, maybe you will. And she put them on and she ate every bite with the mushrooms. So pretty much everything that you're saying if you go into the literature around feeding kids, you've pretty much nailed every one of the key messages that all the experts... I really want to pat myself on the back right now. give yourself <laughs> a huge pat. Because all of those things, the fact of getting... The more engaged kids are with their food, mm-hmm. so in preparation and so on. The, the piece about, well, maybe you just don't like it yet. If you go into the early childhood pedagogy and literature, there's a big, there's a big popular theme right now, which is called the growth mindset. Um, and we've actually... We'll get to the part where I talk about the toolkit I've created, but we talk about the power of yet and how it's such a different message to a child you know this notion of I like this I don't like this or I can do this or I can't do that if you add the word yet I don't like it yet I Mm -hmm. can't do that yet it, it opens the door to this future possibility and it's such a powerful shift and it's it's a shift in the mindset of saying you know it's okay if you don't like it today but you know when we work with kids in the workshops we always we always before we sort of release them to go exploring the different stations we always talk about the what if so if you're at a station there's different foods there and you see something that you've never tried before or maybe you see something you've tried but you when you were younger and you didn't like it then and we ask the kids what do you think you should do today and I kid you not, virtually every time a child, one child in the group will put their hand up and say, well, I think you should try it again. And we, of course, say, yeah, why do you think? And the kids know, well, maybe today I'll like it. And we mm-hmm. talk about that. And we were talking earlier off mic about the fact that, you know what, not everybody has to like broccoli, period. Exactly. And that's that's okay. And, and I think that's one of the pieces that sometimes parents struggle with. Oh, my goodness, I'm a failure as a human if my children don't love kale. I mean, not everybody likes that. But what we want... And when, when I talk, I do a lot of, um, through all the years that we've been delivering workshops to kids in schools and so on, um, I've also been delivering parent workshops, which is, you know, me sort of as an interactive speaking session. And, and so much of what I'll talk about is not, not having this clear set expectation around where, you know, what your kids should be doing this, this and this, but rather an expectation of the kind of relationship you want your child to have with food. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I'll ask parents, what is a health, what does a healthy eater look like to you? And it's not about, you know, these foods are on the plate or that. It's around what my child's relationship with food and eating is and being open to exploring and experiencing and trying foods and being okay with the concepts of, you know what, that's not my thing today. I don't feel like mm-hmm. eating that and that's okay for both of us. Uh, and in fact, this other notion that, you know, there's this huge continuum of relationships with food. Like we just were talking about, you know, you love food, Mark, not so much. You love being in the kitchen messing around. So do I. Other people don't. And all of that is completely fine. And when Mm -hmm. we think about a child and their relationship with food, it's about helping each child to reach that maximum potential for them. Right. And, you you know, I've got three children. They are all different when it comes to food. And they always were when they were younger. And, and you know, I won't I won't name names because maybe they'll listen one day to this. But <laughs> you know, I have to learn that as an adult. Um, but, you know, I have one one of my three kids who was very limited in the range of foods that, that they would eat. And in fact, you know, now as a young adult, that has expanded dramatically, you know, to include so many foods that were not accepted before, but probably that range of foods that I'm trying to use gender neutral language here, uh, <laughs> that range of foods that that child, you know, now eats might not be quite as broad as this, as the foods that that child's siblings eat. 
but that's that's a huge movement for that child. And, and right. I think that's the kind of thing we want to help parents understand. It's all good. It's just really focusing much more on that relationship with food and that experience of eating and how a child feels mm-hmm. than being really focused on, oh my goodness, we should be eating organic kale and this, right. you know? And I think that's so much of the messaging in our, in our social media feeds today and in the news feeds. And, and it's, it's all coming from an, a well-intentioned place, mm-hmm. but sometimes it, it, it's undermining success really. That well-intentioned um, has gone into the schools. You know, as you said, there's so much information out there. Yeah. There's a huge focus in primary grades now. I know even my daughter who's in junior kindergarten, they focus on um, eating. So they have a healthy snack program four oh, days great. a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, the staff brings in whatever healthy snacks and again, trying to encourage them to try different things and learn what healthy eating looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I don't necessarily agree with the choices being healthy, but that's another topic. Well, that, no, that's an important, we can talk about that later. The, yeah. the word, even just taking foods and assigning them labels, this is healthy, this is not. So this is the problem I've been having, uh, not problem, but where I've had to sort of have these conversations with my daughter about it doesn't necessarily mean you can't eat this. So I've noticed that the kids are actually shaming other kids. Like oh little goodness. kids that makes me so are sad. jumping on other kids. So my daughter has these granola bars that she likes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a Canadian company called Made Good. The ingredients yeah. are actually fairly mm-hmm. simple. I don't have any issues with her eating them. And um, I put them in her lunch because they're also school safe, you mm-hmm. know, nut free and whatever else, dairy, whatever else allergens are in there. And um, there's chocolate chips in them. Mm-hmm. And so one of the kids in her class, when she pulled out this granola bar one day said, well, that's not healthy. It has chocolate chips. And so she came home and said to me, you know, this, this boy said that my granola bar wasn't healthy. And I said, the granola, there's nothing wrong with the granola bar. And even if it wasn't the healthiest food to eat, I'm like, that's okay. You can eat, you can have treats sometimes. You can have whatever you she eats tons of fruits and vegetables and anyway so I had to make her feel okay about eating the granola bar again because a kid told her that's not healthy it has chocolate chips and that's a huge thing and even in the language that we use we use in with rainbow plate in our programs and, and, and in the work that I'm doing now with educators and and parents and so on I'm really not a fan. And it's funny because I've recently been looking at, you know, the the logo and the tagline, should I take away healthy eating made simple? Because that word healthy is such a loaded emotional word. And when it comes to food, and and this is something I've often done in the parent workshops that I've done, I I have all these, my basement, you know, my office storeroom is loaded with food products and packages of things that I use for demonstration purposes. And in its most extreme, I have this package of cookies that they are not available in Canada. I don't even know if they're still available in the States, but but I bought them a couple of years ago. I forget the name of them, but they are quote unquote nutrition rich cookies. So they're essentially processed garbage cookies. They have one that looks like chocolate chip and they have one that looks kind of like Oreos. But they're essentially ground up vitamin pills worked into these really crappy processed cookies. And, oh. and the labeling in the package, you know, is very much about showing all the nutrients that a child can get from eating two of these horrific cookies, you know, as much calcium as a glass of milk and vitamin C and vitamin A, all of that in these two garbage cookies. And and to me, that's a real fabulous and extreme example of sort of this distortion mm-hmm. and the and the danger, the pitfalls we can get into when we label food as healthy or unhealthy because right. well what is it what makes this a healthy cookie? Well it's a huge source of nutrients, but 
first of all, it's process and it's got all kinds of other garbage in it. But to me, it's really much more about saying, what message are you giving a child by saying, oh, here, have these cookies. They're really good for you because they are not in any way the kind of foods that we really want to build a lasting mm-hmm. connection to with kids. And in the same can be said for the organic gummy bears that I have that I right. bought at Whole Foods that are made with organic cane juice, which is just sugar. As it's, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sugar that came from sugar cane plants that were grown without pesticides. But to your body, there's not a thing different than the regular sugar we buy on the grocery store shelves. And yet certain parents will feel, oh, it's much better for my child. Well, everything's in packaging and marketing. You know, in the 70s, it was diet, right? It was light and diet Mm -hmm. and reduced fat and reduced sugar. And then you read the ingredients. It's like, sure, it's less fat. But these, I don't even understand these gigantic words, like these chemicals that I'm putting into my body. Sure, or even without the chemicals. One of my classic examples that I always refer to, and again, Having being much older than you guys, I have an image of being in the U.S. in a Target store in the 80s at some point and seeing a woman ahead of me in line with this ginormous bucket of jujubes, regular, regular jujubes, not anything, mm-hmm. with a huge, you know, sticker across the front saying fat free. Fat free, yep. You know, <laughs> I was reading an article actually last night by a really reputable guy uh, on LinkedIn, and he was talking about the whole keto diet phase and talking about the whole you know, you can pick up a product. Now he was referring, he was on an airplane and he was talking about how he got one of those little package of almonds and there was a sticker on saying gluten-free. Yeah. He said, that's like saying chicken is blueberry free. (laughs) And I thought, you know, that's a great example. It's true. There never was gluten in almonds, people. There never was, but but that's marketeering and that's capitalizing on people not being clear about all this. And so back to our original point, Healthy versus unhealthy, that's too confusing. It is, yeah. And and so in terms of the way that I've been approaching and, and through Rainbow Plate programs, approaching that concept with kids and adults, I believe that, sure, we, we, we need to know the difference between broccoli and Timbits, uh, for example. But in the end, I believe that the – and I don't want – anyone to feel guilty about eating anything. And I think that's one of the big pieces. So the way that we tend to approach it, or I tend to approach it is think less about, you know, how you want to label that food and what category it fits into. Think less about what, what the nutrients are and think more about how often you eat it. So in other words, it doesn't matter what you eat, what matters is how often you eat it. And so to think about, you know, all of these foods can fit in anyone's diet and that can be what we call a healthy balanced diet. It's all about proportion. So are you then on board with the way the school teaches it? One of the first exercises my daughter ever brought home from school was a plate. Mm -hmm. It was a picture of a plate Mm -hmm. with a whole bunch of different foods Mm -hmm. and the instructions were circle, I I don't know, let's make up the colors, circle the foods in red that are everyday foods and the ones in blue that are sometimes foods. Exactly. And that's exactly the language I would support. We talk about everyday or all the times foods and sometimes foods. And the other piece about those sometimes foods, we don't want people to feel guilty for enjoying them. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's the other piece around the healthy, not healthy. Okay, look, I know I'm going to eat this and it's not healthy. And there's all that guilt and shame. And that's unhealthy. You know, that relationship, that feeling of negativity around food. Mm-hmm. I, I would prefer a child to understand that, you know, chocolate might not do as much to build a healthy body as an apple 
but it really tastes good and I can enjoy it. And I know that I can have those chocolate chips in my granola bar. I can have chocolate sometimes. I'm just not going to eat it all the time. Whereas I know that eating an apple will do all these things for my body. And it may, it, I hopefully enjoy eating that apple as well. Mm-hmm. And that it's just a matter of understanding where they fit on that all the time, sometimes continuum. So I know anecdotal evidence just based on having kids and doing what I do that because my kids don't feel guilty about eating things, I do let them have Timbits. I do let them. I would too. Yeah, I, I, I do let them have ice cream. It, they're allowed to have these things, but again, it's not something we do every day. And I do notice because I've sort of allowed them to explore things, and we we eat all these different foods. That majority of the time, they actually do choose the healthy foods. So I wanted to know, like, does the science support that? Like, if you yes. take away the guilt yes. around eating, yes, isn't that going to make kids? pick the healthier options usually. Exactly. There's a whole movement now in the kind of diet slash weight loss. I don't even know what, what to call that camp. And it's called intuitive eating. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. And there are a lot of practitioners promoting it. There are even dietitians and, and other professionals supporting people, usually adults, but also kids in developing this sort of comfort zone around food globally. And and intuitive eating, which I mean, I'm not I'm not a certified expert, so I'm reluctant to sort of get too technical, but it's it's really about trusting your body and being comfortable around all foods. And and what the research does clearly show is that when we have this generalized, relaxed comfort around food and eating, we're able to navigate this world Mm -hmm. and and we're able to sort of make choices in that kind of balanced proportion that we were just talking about, where most of your diet generally comes from foods that fit into these categories, the fruits, the vegetables, the whole grains, all of those things. And a part of your diet quite comfortably can also come from those other foods. And that because you're not, because you're relaxed about those choices and you know that you can have those when you want them. And if you feel like having a piece of candy or chocolate or chips or whatever that happens to be, there's not this tendency to sort of go overboard on those foods. So there's there's a woman who's sort of regarded professionally as the leader in this field. And her name is Ellen Satter, E-L-L-Y-N. Uh, Satter, S-A-T-T-E-R. And she's a she's a feeding therapist and psychologist in the U.S. And, and her work is is definitely um, behind what I'm doing. I think it, I've saved some art. Like, as you were spelling yeah. her name, I'm like, I'm imagining that I've saved articles on my computer by her. So Great. I got to yeah, look that because up Because a lot after. of what you're saying is very much in line. Yeah. And, and I'm always very... I think it's important to always acknowledge that she's really viewed as the guru in this space. A mm-hmm. lot of people, I mean, her her approach and her underlying philosophy is is widely used across the field for anyone who's really doing evidence-based work around feeding and kids. Um, but I think it's important to say that, you know, she gets mm-hmm. credit. And, and what she talks about, um, she's, she was... She coined the expression, the division of responsibility in feeding and eating. And what that essentially means is that, and and, and in terms of the goal, it's really raising children who are competent eaters, able to feed themselves, able to be relaxed and open and positive Mm -hmm. around food, able to navigate the world in which they are eating and to move towards just being competent adults around feeding. Um, And what she says is that this division of responsibility is really, it's just a complex way of saying, Everybody has a job to do. As the adult, your job is to decide what's available, when meals happen, and and where they happen. 
and and that obviously, you know, the level of control is going to change as your children get Mm -hmm. older. But when your kids are young, you're the gatekeeper, you know, you decide what foods come in the house, meal times, and, you know, as you've said, we're going to eat together, what have you. But once you put that food out, your job has ended, and it's the child's job to say, I can have as much or as little I want from what's here. And Mm -hmm. I love that you talked earlier about not making a million different meals for everybody or short order cooking. I'm with you. I mean, at some level, we've all got enough to do besides cooking 17 meals. But but more importantly, if you prepare a meal based on what you think is a balanced and appropriate uh, range of selections for your child at any age and stage, um, that's helping your child to be comfortable Uh, feeding themselves from what's on offer. And if you then, if a child says, I don't want that, and you jump up, okay, I'll make you a peanut butter sandwich, then you send your child a message of, you know, you don't have to learn to like different foods. And I also loved when you said earlier, sometimes they're just going to eat bread. And, And part of this approach is about always making sure there's something available at every meal that your child can fill that up was on comfortably. the best advice I ever Good. got when I had Good. my first daughter, when she was sort of entering that toddler phase, when she realized that she had control, mm-hmm. you know, it's like in the beginning, when every, I think everybody gets lost in this. When you have a baby and you're making the food and the babies, eat, they're going to eat whatever you give them. Mm-hmm. To a There's, point. To a point. But and ma- then they ma- turn two. <laughs> exactly. You get to this point when you have a toddler where they suddenly realize, I can just say no. So a lot of parents are like, I don't understand what happened. I used to have like a great eater. Now she's getting picky. They all do that. It's not picky. It's that is. I'm not a fan of that. I mean, it's unfortunately it's one of those things that occasionally, you know, if I'm posting on Instagram and so on, you know, I know that more people will notice this if I put hashtag picky eater. Yes, but it's a label that becomes very self fulfilling. And I've had. I I mean, I'm kind of getting sidetracked, but I remember so incredibly clearly more than one time in a workshop with young kids where a young child will come up to me, and and take my hand and say, I just want you to know that I'm a very picky eater so I might not eat the things here. And my heart would break for that child because where would they have heard that? Mm. And and a child is, you know, hearing, oh, you're picky, and that becomes a self-fulfilling thing. Mm-hmm. So so sort of back to the Ellen Satter piece, what the re- and she what I love about her in addition to her approach working beautifully um, is that she comes from a place of evidence, which is something that's very important to me. And the evidence is super clear. When people, when food is pushed on people, they back off mm-hmm. and they eat less. And when, and the flip side is that when children eat in a, in a, or anyone eats, quite frankly, in an environment where food feels restricted. So think for a young child, you know, you can't have the sweets and treats. Think for an adult, you're on a diet. Boom. You go on a diet, the first thing you want to do is eat everything in the universe, right? Tell me I'm on a diet, I'm eating cake under the table. And you and everybody else. And it's well <laughs> documented in actually serious scientific research. And so this notion of making certain, quote, unhealthy foods forbidden is the most powerful way in the world to elevate them to this high emotional status. Mm-hmm. And and it backfires. And so one of the things that Ellen Satter talks about in her literature, and I've shared widely in the parent works that I've done, um, the, the, the big pivoting challenge for many parents is dessert. Right. And and the big the the standard and our parents did it, my parents I know did it for sure. And and so many people do again with the best of intentions. If you finish your fill of length broccoli, you can have a 
cookie. Oh, even I am guilty of that with my young are. with my youngest yeah. one because when my older one, when she was the only child, it was you know she just ate, and when she was done, sometimes I'd ask her when she was done, "Do you want?" An orange. Do you want Mm -hmm. fruit? It used Mm -hmm. to always be fruit after dinner. Mm -hmm. As she got older, if we had some sort of treat in the house, if there was cookies or Mm -hmm. whatever, she'd say, well, can I have a cookie? Sure. You finish your dinner, you can have a cookie. So now that my younger one is watching, Mm -hmm. she knows that when dinner's over, there's usually something that she likes, whether it's fruit or a cookie or yogurt or whatever it is. There's something she really likes afterwards. So yeah, I'm definitely guilty of using the language. Sometimes she'll eat five bites of her dinner because she knows there's something else. She'll put it on the table and say, mommy, I'm full. Where's dessert? Right. Like, okay. No, no, no. It doesn't work this way. Right. But again, that is such a common approach. Mm-hmm. And, and to repeat with all of the mo- the, the greatest love and the best intentions. Mm-hmm. But what happens is there's, there's a few things that happen. One is, you know, the other piece in turn on top of the whole, you know, wanting children to feel comfortable and relaxed and open one of the visions for what a healthy eater looks like to me is a child who is mindful as an eater and is able to kind of tune into their own body and first and foremost recognize those signals of I'm hungry Mm -hmm. and I'm full and secondly to be able to respond appropriately to them which means that if you are full that's your body telling you you don't need to eat anymore. Mm -hmm. And so this whole notion of finish your broccoli to get your dinner, your broccoli to get your cookie is overriding that. It's sending this signal that, you know, eat your meal, then you're actually full and now cram in this forbidden food because you make room for it. I had an adult in one of my workshops come up to me after and she said, oh my goodness, you just made me realize this. I had this vision that I had two stomachs, my dinner stomach and my dessert stomach. And that I would eat my dinner because I never got my dessert unless I finished my dinner. And I always would be full, but know that then I would I would make room because that would be the only time I got these treats. And if you think about it, that's such a backwards message mm-hmm. to give. And so what Ellen Satter promotes, and I've, you know, like so many other professionals have have widely shared this concept is try this. You decide you're the adult, so you can decide, you know, what, quote, dessert looks like in your house and how often there is such a thing. If you're actually going to, you know, deem it as a separate entity than the meal, Um, you decide how often there are cookies or cake or ice cream after a meal with along with any meal. And, And yes, we want children to be able to make their own choices about how much food and different things, but straight up around things like sweets and treats and so on, we do need to be a little more involved to help them understand that perhaps portions of those need to be more managed because mm-hmm. of the nature of those foods. But regardless, a strategy that is widely recommended is try this. So if cookies are tonight's dessert with this meal and an appropriate serving is one cookie for each person in the family, then then take those cookies, you've got a family of four, and put them on the table with the meal. With the meal, with the broccoli Mm -hmm. and the chicken or the pizza or whatever, and let everybody know that there's one cookie for everyone and they can have it whenever they want. And so back to the original point that we got sort of talking about, everyone can choose when and if they want to eat their cookie. And, and the thing, and so I've had, I have had parents stand up and holler at me from the back of a workshop. Are you kidding me? (laughs) If I put the cookies on the table, my child is just going to eat their cookie and that will be it and they're done. And I kind of think, yeah, 
So what would happen if your child's really not that hungry and tonight they have their cookie and nothing else? They were going to overstuff they themselves. Probably, that's to begin all with. they need to yeah. eat. And, and there's this sort of panic about what if my child only wants the cookie? So I will tell you in a household where the sweets or what have you have been restricted or maybe it's chips or whatever it is that's the, you know, the high emotional food in your family, there's this kind of mistrust. And when you start making things more available or, you know, you don't have to do that every night, maybe three nights a week, there's cookies or whatever. There's this initial stage where that's going to be so powerful and compelling that everyone's going to eat that. But again, it's widely documented in in research that eventually everybody just gets over it and relaxes and knows that it's going to be there and I'm going to get these foods on a regular basis. And it's not that powerful or dramatic that I need to go crazy when I see them. And very often a child will take that cookie and have a bite and then have their broccoli and the chicken. And sometimes they won't finish the cookie and they get to this point of sort of leveling out where those two types of foods sit Mm -hmm. on that emotional spectrum. And to me, that's a very powerful thing. I, I remember listening to somebody speak saying, my great vision is that my child one day can, can look at a chocolate cake or a bowl of chips or cookies or whatever it is and say, oh, there's cake. Yeah, I'm not in the mood for cake right now. I'm mm-hmm. going to have a sandwich. And that's just that notion of being able to be comfortable with all foods and to know that you can sort of serve your needs and your wants of your body at any given time because they do change. Uh, you just appealed to Mark so much. That's why I, I couldn't even hold it in when you're talking about put the cookies out with the meal. The number of times that, and again, I guess it's just my old school mentality because in my family, no, you were never eating dessert before the meal. Oh my goodness, in that's most ridiculous. Families, in most families. <laughs> But I remember early on in our relationship, there would be times where it'd be right before dinner and he's eating a donut or something. I'm like, what are you doing? We're about to have dinner. And he would say to me, I'm a grown up. I can eat things in whatever order I want. <laughs> in whatever order. But but the only piece not to discredit Mark over here, but you know, for a child, we don't want them eating that donut before the meal. We're talking yeah. about during the meal. Because again, people will say, my kid doesn't eat anything at dinner. And I'll say, okay, what were they doing an hour before dinner? Yeah. Having a huge snack. So you wanted this goes back to so mark you can do whatever you want because i need to make sure that you're happy with me Um, you invited me here but but as parents and we're thinking of our children we want to take a look at the the schedule and the pattern of meals Mm -hmm. and snacks that we offer our children because that's your job is just is to have and and what works best with children and what also supports developing this kind of comfortable relationship and this openness to foods is having a very regular and predictable pattern of meals and snacks. I would never prescribe what that pattern should be and what the timing is because every family and certainly every family's schedule in this busy world we live in is different. So you need to figure out you know, for some families, the big meal of the day happens at 3.45 when the kids get home from school because that's when yeah. they're starving. And that's kind of, quote, dinner for some families. And, and parents are always like, my children are rangy after school. And then we get to, you know, and they have all these snacks. And then we sit down for a family dinner and nobody eats anything. Right. And I'll say, we'll take a look at sort of your child's experience and figure out when, you know, you should schedule different things. P.S. Children are much more likely to be open to trying and exploring and enjoying foods like vegetables and so on when they're hungry yeah um so you know just kind of putting that in, into what we're talking about but once you said okay this is when we're sitting down together to eat and i love uh that you talked about that being a priority um at that time then you can say sure well this is this is what the meal is the meal might be you know pizza or tacos and assortment of veggies and fruit and this and that 
and cookies, one for everybody and just put it all out. Um, the other big piece that really supports this type of relationship with food is serving food in what we call family style. So rather than yes. plating up each person's plate, um, putting out, and it does not have to be on bone china or fancy, you know, any serving pieces, you can literally take the pot of pasta off the stove and put it on a hot pad on the table and, and whatever, but just putting those family style dishes of whatever you're about to eat and supporting children and helping to serve themselves. That is probably when dinners go the best at our house yep. is when I, I don't put it on the plate. It's Good when I bring you. everything out. And I will say to them, you know, how many pieces of chicken do you want? How many of the, or yeah. whatever. And then exactly. they, they sort of create their own meal. Amazing. Um, I love that you said schedule. I love schedules. I am a, Same. I am a really weird, weird person when it comes to routines. Like I, I feel the most comfortable and the most relaxed, which sounds like it should be the opposite when no. I'm just doing things on my schedule. No. And that's, I, I'm with you. And and again, I, I know I keep coming back to the evidence, but I love to, to know when things are supported by evidence. Mm -hmm. But but we know that that's when everyone feels most most people, certainly children, do feel more secure within a routine and knowing mm -hmm. that things are predictable and, and I, I kind of interrupted you, but I will also tell you that as a parent, you know, one of the things I hear from parents so much is my kids are panhandling. When can we have this? Or how come I, you know, I want this, I want that. It gives you a sense of saying, Oh, well, we're not eating right now. If, if we want to help kids in being open to eating um, a variety of foods and trying things and exploring, we want them to come to meals and snacks. However you're scheduling them, we want them to arrive at those opportunities to eat kind of hungry, like, mm -hmm. you know, knowing, that there's been time since the last time they eat and, and having a predictable schedule enables you to kind of fall back on that. So if your schedule, you know, is, is breakfast and lunch and then afternoon snack and an hour later it's dinner, what have you. And in between snack time and dinner, your child is coming, you know, looking for something. It allows you to say, oh, we, we ate just a few minutes ago and really soon we're going to have dinner. That's going to be on the table at dinner time. Right. And it allows you to just sort of shut down that kind of panhandling or, or begging in between meals. <laughs> I've never heard it referred to as panhandling, but <laughs> maybe that's one extreme, of the but... uh, one of the things I do love actually is that my kids don't do that. Like Good. they're not people that come; they, they don't come to me and ask for snacks. But I think I have always attributed it to the schedule. Like they know sure, when they, they get up. It. We're not eat the minute you wake up, people. Mm -hmm. I've never been that way, and so they're not that way. Mm -hmm. We get up, we kind of hang out. I would say probably anywhere from like forty minutes to an hour after we're up is when we eat. But that's great, and it works. And so. When I put breakfast on the table, all I have to do is say, girls, and they are literally running and they're going, breakfast time, breakfast time. That's awesome. And they come and eat. Um, and then same thing is between breakfast and lunch, depending on what time we had breakfast and what's going on throughout the day. Like when I say I'm scheduled, it's not the exact same time no, no, every but day, pattern, but it's a, a pattern. A predictable and yeah. regular pattern. And so sure. if we're having a larger gap between breakfast and lunch, sometimes I'll offer them a morning snack. But the thing is, they always know that... I'm dealing with it. You know, I'm taking care of the exactly. food. So they never have to come say to me, like, I'm hungry. When's dinner? I'm hungry. And it, it's... But that you've just shown, you've just expressed exactly why that kind of a situation works. Right. Because you, your children have this comfort. They know their needs are going to be looked after. Mm -hmm. They know it's a regular and a predictable experience. And so you've taken that uncertainty out of the mix. And right. that is, that's exactly the point. And that's exactly why it works. And so for me, I always recommend to families 
figure out what schedule fits your family. Right. That's going to be different in every household and just stick with it because it allows everything else to be much less anxious and it allows your children to feel comfortable and to know. And as I said, it also does put a few, they don't need to be huge gaps between eating, but it does put gaps between eating because when, you know, there was this mode a while back where we talked about grazing as being healthier and small meals throughout the day. And, and that's still, you know, physiologically, there's value behind that. But but when children particularly are just continually grazing throughout the day, they never develop that concept of my body's hungry, my body's full. And those are really important signals for, for everyone to be able to be aware of and, and respond to. I remember uh, several years back, there was a book that I read, French Kids Eat Everything. I did, did read, you read that, that book. Karen Lebillon, a great yes. book. And it chronicled a woman's experience moving to France with her two, her family, her two young children. And I mean, there's a lot in that book and it was terrific and, you know, talking about the whole French approach to mm -hmm. teaching children about food and so many positive things as well. But one of the things that really struck me was when she sort of, she sort of almost flipped back and expressed what the European or the French perception of North American style, you know, eating and, and particularly the way North Americans feed children, because in France, it is a very structured experience. They do go long periods of time and they have sort of one scheduled snack per day and it's in the afternoon and they have, you know, very strong beliefs around sitting down and the etiquette around meals and all the rest of it. And she describes in the book, I think at one point, you know, the French perception of a North American toddler's day, which is sort of like, get out of bed, someone sticks a bottle in your mouth or a sippy cup. And and then they play on the floor with, you know, some Cheerios or something. And then they, they get sat in the high chair and fed a meal. And then they get bundled up into the stroller to go to the park. And the stroller has a tray with snacks in it. And there's a sippy cup there. And they go and they get on the swing for three minutes. And then at the park, they're given, an, you know, and there's this continuous nonstop grazing and feeding and, and how that really undermines a lot of what we're talking about. It's interesting when you talk about the grazing, I still feel like I follow that. I think I just maybe interpreted it differently mm -hmm. because, yeah, like my kids probably eat five times a day with meals and mm -hmm. snacks. And it, it's not these massive portions, right. but they're eating Every few hours, and I know As Mark's, Mark's the same way, right? When should. when I leave them with him, um, they eat every couple of hours, mm -hmm. and so they're never like starving. Mm -hmm. But they do when it's time to have a meal. They do like, oh yeah, I am hungry, mm -hmm. and I think they're both pretty. Well, at least the older one's pretty comfortable at knowing when to stop. The little one, she just really likes to eat. I think she ate four breakfasts yesterday. <laughs> but that's okay, you know. Again, it's it's allowing her to feel comfortable filling up. Is yeah. the other big piece of what we're talking about. It's not saying, you know, you should stop eating now because I think you should stop. And that's another big big piece in this whole mindfulness, which ultimately is going to help her develop this comfortable relationship with food and people who look at a child and say my child's eating too much well how do you know what too much is you know you don't know how she's feeling inside and and what we do know for a fact is that when when we limit or when we restrict someone's ability to eat you know and and their response to their own cues that can really set up a future problem in terms of them becoming obsessive and, and feeling that, oh my goodness, food is going to be scarce and I want to eat more of this, but someone else is telling me not to. Mm -hmm. And that can set up sort of an, you know, an emotional dynamic around food. Everyone is different, and certainly with toddler and young children, their appetites vary so much from day to day. Oh, yeah. Their body's needs fluctuate, and, and the best thing you can do is just allow her 
to embrace how she's feeling and to get that feeling of, I want to eat more of this and fill up because because she'll learn how to regulate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, NPS, of course, I don't need to tell you that every body is different and every child is going to grow into their own body and their own healthy size and shape and that is going to look different and even within a family you're going to get children of different shapes and sizes you know I always say defer to your health professional if your child is growing according to their growth curve and let them enjoy and respect their own body's cues for for eating and their comfort level around that yeah I think that's really important too is that if if your kid is saying they're full Mm -hmm. you really should listen to them exactly if you're forcing them to eat beyond that feeling of full and so, yeah, there's yeah. definitely some nights and I understand the anxiety parents have, even myself, Absolutely. like feeling like I know this when my daughter eats, you know, four pieces of ravioli and says, I'm done. I'm like, oh, it's dinner. Like you're yeah. going to be going 15 hours before you eat yeah. again. Are you sure you're, f-? but if she's full, she's full. That's and right. I know they're not malnourished, and I think parents need to remember, if your kid skips a meal, they're not going to die. Honestly, I'm hearing you, you could be leading my workshops because these are can all I, the Can I come work with uh, you? <laughs> I would love that. I think we get along great. That's exactly, exactly the, the most yeah. perfect message. You know, the worst thing that will happen, thank heavens, and, and, you know, and your family or whoever, that nothing tragic will happen if they go an extra long time. And in the morning, if she's only eaten four pieces of ravioli before bed, she'll be extra hungry. She'll probably have a really good breakfast. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a, it's much more important for her to sort of feel that she's in charge of re- recognizing and responding to the signals from her body. Mm-hmm. And and you know the other piece that that we often talk about is a child saying I'm not hungry doesn't always mean I'm not hungry. So so when a child comes to the table and, and I love and I grew up in a household uh, similar to what you described, we ate breakfast sitting down as a family. The table was set. I mean that was just how I grew up. It wasn't because anybody was following any rules. That was just the way my parents structured mm-hmm. things. And and we know you know there's so much written about the value of eating together as a family and all the rest of it. But if your child comes, if you set the table and you're having a meal together and your child comes and sits down and says I'm not hungry. You know, parents say, well, what do I do? And and my answer to that is always just say, okay, just come and join us. We'll, we'll chat. Mm-hmm. And very often if you do that, that child often will, will just eat if nobody's staring at them and really criticizing what they're eating or not eating. Because oftentimes the child arriving at the table saying, I'm not hungry, is, is actually them saying without realizing it, you know, I'm too wired up from what I was just doing, or I've got something on my mind, or I'm not ready to eat. And if, if you shift the focus away from that child and what they're putting on their plate and what they're eating, they will often just settle in and may well just join you and eat if nobody's commenting on it. Or in fact, if they're legitimately not hungry, they won't eat and they'll be just fine, as you said. And Does this remind you of the spaghetti incident yep. up north? <laughs> yep. the you want to tell, tell Janet about the spaghetti incident? Well, you, 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 I have you this image of, of, of you know, <laughs> walls covered. In a, no, no, yeah, no. Um, my parents invited us up north to their place and uh, we were just going for the day and it was dinner time. And my mom, she, my mom is so funny. Every time she makes spaghetti, she doesn't know how to measure out the appropriate amount of pasta. Mm-hmm. So she'll make a big pot of sauce and then she'll make enough spaghetti to feed 2,500 people. Like oh, it's, She sounds like I'd get along great with her. Oh, it's <laughs> so funny. That's my style. <laughs> so she was cooking spaghetti because that's like the easiest thing to make. Mm-hmm. And like I said, my mom hates cooking. And she realized I made way too much. Mm-hmm. So she went and invited all of her friends. Okay. Uh, so we had probably like 12 people oh, sitting wow. down at this table eating spaghetti. And my older daughter actually loves spaghetti. Mm-hmm. 
but we sit down to the table and all of a sudden all the focus was on her Mm -hmm. and she's you know she's up north so we had been outside all day she'd been playing in the swimming pools you know she's like you said she was wired up and now we sit down yeah she was probably not even three and we sit down to eat I've got the baby so I'm trying to focus on the baby but everybody else is focused on my daughter and are you gonna eat grandma's spaghetti oh it's so and they would not stop with her and the spaghetti and so Mark's sitting beside her and I mean it's not his family and he's just staring at me and I'm like any minute he's gonna snap and tell everyone to shut the (laughs) up (laughs) he was getting so frustrated because had everyone just left her alone she likely would have eaten the spaghetti instead we sat there for probably 45 minutes for her to eat a total of like three bites of spaghetti because everybody wouldn't stop staring at her so you get it 100 (laughs) and it's so amazing that Again, with all of the best intentions, some of the intentions around, you know, grandma made you this wonderful meal. Aren't you going to eat it? And some of the intentions are, I want you to be healthy. I mean, all of our parents' generation and grandparents' generation was super obsessed with everybody eating enough. And maybe that came from a time of scarcity. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But but there's nothing, nothing, you know, more powerful at inhibiting someone's ability to eat comfortably than having eyes and focus on what you're doing. And so I always tell parents... The, the one thing that you should never talk about at your dinner table is what anybody's eating or not. Don't even talk about that. Mm. Um, just ignore it and it will take care of itself. And and that's so counterintuitive to people because with the best of intentions, have another bite and don't you want some of this and all that. And again, it comes from a place of love and care and concern, but it can so inhibit a child's ability to just relax and get on with this business of eating. And every child's different. Some kids thrive on it and they they don't even notice. But for children who may be a little more sensitive or just even for, for the average child, it can just be very uncomfortable to mm-hmm. have that level of focus. Years ago, I remember seeing some videos and I've always said, oh, I want to reshoot all those videos for, for you know 2019 because they could be hilarious, but also very powerful. And they actually recorded videos where adults were saying, you know, adults were seated at a, at a table eating a meal and were speaking to each other the way we often speak to our kids in these situations. You know, two adults out in a restaurant having a meal. Well, aren't you going to finish your fish? Hmm. No, I've had enough. Well, how do you know you've had enough, really? Don't you think you want to take one more? If you were out with a friend eating dinner and someone said that to you, you'd look at them like, hello. Like, but but these are the kinds of things we say it's to kids. True. It's true. It's like we forget intent. that kids are people sometimes. And, and again, I, I keep saying it because I do acknowledge a hundred million percent that we mean the best for our kids. We want, well, what do you mean you're not having your broccoli? It's going to make you grow up big and strong. Like I'm 40, you know, I'm 58 years old. I can, I know what I want to eat. Can you just please leave me alone? But we, but imagine being on the receipt end of some of these behaviors and some of these mm. well-intentioned comments to kids and you realize how it's perceived from the other end like what do you mean I have to eat some more of this to have that you know you're in, you can you have to read the situation too like I know my older daughter like she has like this sense of pride when she eats a new food or she tries something new mm-hmm. like it's she wants to show me like, look, I tried something and I eat like with the mushrooms. She was like, I like them now, mommy. I like mushrooms. So the very next night after we had the pizza, it was actually our uh, seventh wedding anniversary and we didn't have a babysitter. So I said, I'm going to make dinner at home and we'll all have dinner together. And my kids had never had steak before. Mm. Um, Not for any reason other than uh, we we live in a condo, so barbecuing isn't as easy mm-hmm. as stepping out onto the back deck. Sure. Um, 
but I thought, okay, it's our anniversary. I'm going to make steak. So I made steak. I did baked potatoes. I made some glazed carrots and I added mushrooms mm-hmm. because now, now she likes mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And I put all the food in front of them. One, I was ecstatic, happiest moment of my life. Both of my kids didn't just like the steak. They loved the steak. <laughs> yeah. If you're vegan and listening, I'm sorry, but I love steak. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my younger daughter was obsessed with the carrots. I mean, they're sweet, right? Yeah. And so she liked the carrot. She liked the baked potato. And the older one loved the steak and um, the mushrooms. And during the meal, because like I said, it's sort of a sense of pride for her. I said, did you try any of the carrots? I'm like, these are different carrots than I usually make. And she was like, no, I don't think I want carrots. I was like, okay, you don't have to eat them. Like, but maybe you just want to try one because they're very different than what we usually make. And she picked one up and she tried it and she said, I like these carrots. So sometimes, you know, I'm I'm not quite wanting to pressure her, but I will try to encourage, you know, just, just try it. If you don't like it, don't eat it. But just taste it. And I couldn't agree more. I think I think we are all the experts about our own family yeah. and our own children. And I, I always say to people, here's here's why I'm saying what I'm saying. And in the end, your job is to is to process it, find what resonates with you and and incorporate what you feel makes sense to you. Mm-hmm. The whole piece about take one more, take a bite or try this is actually really controversial if you go into, you know, all the quote feeding experts and read what people write and that some people are very, very much in support of that gentle nudge or give opening mm-hmm. the door for it. I mean, I think as you've suggested, it's more sort of prompting that kind of exploratory taste right. or piece. The hardcore purists will be like, do not even do that because that's still pressure dressed up as Mm -hmm. acceptance. And I think in the end, it's about understanding how it could go one way or the other and how for some children that will just take a bite could really come across as, as really uncomfortable pressure. Whereas for others they kind of need that little nudge to give it a go. And I think in the end, each parent and each adult who's working with children needs to be able to read that situation say, okay, in this situation, we're going to do it this way. I will tell you that in in a rainbow plate workshop experience, we don't ever tell a child to take a bite or do whatever. Right. We we say pick it up. You know, like very. You know, we'll be sitting with a group of kids, and for example, chunks of cut up raw purple cabbage, which is the one food we use in every program we've ever done. Because if you've never looked inside a raw purple cabbage, you're missing something that's spectacularly beautiful. And we always show the kids, you know, a cross section inside a cabbage because it's so awesome. And we always have these little cut up chunks that have that interwoven amazing purple and white mm-hmm. pattern and all the rest of it. But P.S. If we're handing out pieces for children to explore and for sure at least one child is going to be like no I don't want one what we will often say is oh no no you don't need to eat it just take one and explore it Mm -hmm. and just look at the pattern and the shapes and all the rest of it and very often that in and of itself leads to them taking a taste and so on but I could not agree more that you know your child best and you know what works and it's just I think more than anything about being aware of what you're doing and saying, is this going to be pressure? Because pressure can be super subtle for children. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we don't even realize we're doing that. But it's about being really tuned into your own child and how they respond and what what that balance is for them. Yeah. And I think that's part of the importance of eating as a family. Like I know I sound so super cheesy, but that is important for me to sit with them. You're speaking to cheese over here. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of cheese, I love cheese. But to sit with them and actually be present and be, like you said, the mindfulness of it. So if I'm watching her eat and, you know, let's say we're having a stir fry of some sort and I'm watching that she's only eating the noodles maybe and maybe the carrots, usually I'll let that be. But every so often I'll be like, "Um, did you try a piece of the chicken yet? Just ask her. 
And if she's like, no, I don't really want the chicken. I'm like, okay, if you don't want it, okay. But I do kind of prompt her a little bit because I find, like I said, it's sort of like pride for her to be like, look, I did it or look, Mm -hmm. I tried it. And so with her, I'll prompt her a little bit. My younger one, as I said, I'm a little more guilty of, you know, using some of the no-nos, like Mm -hmm. saying, you got to eat this, Mm -hmm. you know, because I know I haven't tried putting the dessert on the table, but that's something maybe we will try. I want you to try that and let me know. Because, yes, she's always, she knows there's something else coming. And dessert was never a thing when I was a kid. Like, Mm -hmm. we were not dessert people. And dessert wasn't even really a thing with our older daughter. It wasn't until she got old enough to ask. They're all different. Every child responds to that stuff differently. One, One of the other big things, and I talked earlier about how exposure is really the objective, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, if I'm that geek who's quoting the literature again, but, but that is who I am. And and what we know is that, you know, it's, there are people who study this and there are people like me who read this stuff, that it's well documented that the average child, whatever an average child is, um, the average child needs on the something on the order of 15, 15 exposures. Yep. You've, so you've heard that to a new food before they'll accept it. And mm-hmm. that means I mean, I can tell you out of my three children, you know, the the one who I was referring to earlier probably needed more like 30 exposures to right. f- certain foods before is, they would be accepted. Is an arbitrary number, I guess. It's an average. Well, no, it's actually been well documented, yeah. but that's average, which means average, that some kids yeah. are going to need four exposures, some are going to need 28. And and that the, the point is really just that if a child says, no, I don't want that. You just mentally tick off that's number 18, you know, and you just know (laughs) that you're moving along that your job is to continually expose your child. And as we said earlier, you know, not everybody needs to like broccoli. You might say, get to this point this, where it's like, yeah. all right, mom, that's 387 times I've seen broccoli and I still don't like it. There Can are I leave it alone? Yes, you're dislikes. 28 years old. I'm going to stop asking you to eat broccoli. <laughs> yeah. um, but just understanding that the task is about exposure. And as you mentioned earlier, that if we if we bail and, and resort to short order cooking or saying, oh, I know you don't like broccoli, here's another peanut butter sandwich, then what we're doing is taking away that opportunity for my child to have those exposures because there might be that one day where they're like, oh my goodness, I actually like broccoli, you know, and you tick off, ha ha. Um, but we have to keep, first and foremost, we have to keep eating all the foods we want to be eating as a family mm-hmm. and as adults and don't don't narrow down your diet because you have a child who doesn't eat broccoli. So you just keep happily eating it. That and you is keep expo- preaching to me. Good. And, and, and you, in that process of continuing to make those meals that, you know, provide all those wonderful foods that we talked about, you are just giving your child yet another exposure. Because if we just, if we cater, if you were to just go to your four-year-old or if you're, you're two and five-year-olds and say, what do we want for dinner? You ask the average child in that age group to be in charge of the menu which is back to Ellen Satter. That's really the adult's job. But yeah. if you let the kids dictate the menu, I mean, every child in the planet, in North America, anyway. Chicken nuggets. Chicken nuggets and KD. Thank you very much. So there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with eating chicken nuggets and KD sometimes. Mm-hmm. Being 100% clear on what they are, and that's another whole conversation. But you're in charge of how often those foods are on the menu. And and so we're not going to cater to that. So if you're the, the adult and your job is to decide the what of eating, then you can say, oh, we're tonight we're having chicken and broccoli and, you know, apples or what have you, and the kids can take it or leave it. But as you said, with always ensuring there's something for sure, even yeah. if it's only bread, that that everybody will happily eat and, and fill up on. And so it's that balancing act. And, and it's about really just being clear on what you're working towards, being clear about 
you know, what might happen if we continue down in this direction versus that direction. And then in the end, just saying, this is real life and I'm doing the best I can here. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, not beating yourself up if you're doing this or that on occasion, but just really having this big picture look at, at the whole journey, which I think is the best way to view anything really. So before we get uh, further into sort of, again, how this program is working. Yeah, I wanted yeah. to tell you this story because it, I just saw this yesterday and I was laughing so hard I was crying and snorting all simultaneously. It was really cute. <laughs> um, there was a video online. A mom had made sloppy joes for mm -hmm. her toddler. Okay. And <laughs> this kid, probably somewhere between two and three, opens up this bun and he goes, Mommy, it's poop. <laughs> and there's like a three minute video of the mom saying no it's not just take That's a bite so just try it and he kept saying I, I can't try it it's poop That's it's so poop I'll have to find but it. the funniest part of it not funny actually it's more sad is I then went to read the comments and oh my goodness, no wonder we have such an unhealthy relationship with food and no wonder we need programs like this is most of the comments were either shaming the mom for A, feeding the kids sloppy joes to begin oh my with. Goodness, that's so sad. Uh, jumping all over her saying, because she said at one point, okay, if you really don't want to eat it, I'll get you something else. No, he has to eat what you cooked. I'm like, okay, so now we're forcing it on him. Mm -hmm. The kid thinks it's poop. Mm -hmm. So I don't think you should be forcing the kid to eat the poop. And the kid sounds pretty perceptive. Probably yeah. if you Look objectively, and then the third uh, range of comments was um, f there. So yeah, the shaming the mom for feeding the kid that um, shaming her for not you know forcing him to eat it, and then the last of it was. Um, well, why, why did you let this go on so long? Why not just take a bite of it and show him that it's not poop? And I was like, A, can you guys not see that this is hilarious? Mm -hmm. Like if I was that mom, I would, have, I would have let that go on forever because right. the kid is so cute. And she's mom, hoping to poop. get a viral video. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't believe the number of people. I was like, yeah. so what if he's eating a sloppy joe? Like, does that mean he has sloppy joes seven nights a week? No. And in the end, it's not your business what anybody it's really else is not. doing. And I think it, it comes back to that whole, this, I, I'm not a fan of extremism in anything, in no. politics, in life, in parenting, in feeding. I mean, let's just all relax. And and it's funny because if I if I step back and I and I do very often, I've had so many people offer to volunteer or come work with me or engage Rainbow Plate in different ways. And and I tend to always ask people what was it about Rainbow Plate that appealed to you? What was it that made you reach out? I've had people reach out from around the world to become part of what I'm doing. Uh, and the one word that comes back more than anything is the word positive. People say, and, and, it's, and, and that just makes my heart swell because that's exactly what I'm trying to do. The messaging is about being positive. And, and even when you take a look at a more clinical kind of a perspective, if, if you ask me how the concept of a rainbow plate should come across to people and this is going right into the language that we use with children in the workshops and I've got this new educators toolkit which I hope we can talk about um, but the concept of a rainbow plate itself is as we said earlier it's really about having a plate of food that is colorful because it has you know fruits and vegetables and different colors some fruits and vegetables whatever and the notion is not it should be this many or these ones or these colors or in this way it's about meeting people where they're at first and foremost because every person on this planet is arriving at what they're eating at any moment in time because of a huge range of variables. Where you live, mm -hmm. your lifestyle, your socioeconomic position, your budget, your culture, your personal experience with food, your parents' experience with food, 
what season it, I mean, there's so many variables that determine what might be on anybody's plate or anybody's table at any moment in time. And, and there's nothing at all useful that can come from shaming or guilting people from what's on their plate currently. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to start by not even, not even going into that direction, as you said, with the mom with the sloppy joes, but rather the concept of a rainbow plate. And this is always the way we present it to children in workshops or to educators is to say it's about looking at that plate and saying, can I add color to it? It's, it's just saying start where you're at and add something, just doing something positive to add that to increase the maybe a little bit more of one or another fruit or vegetable Mm -hmm. or more depending on what you can afford or you have access to or what's in season or whatever or your comfort zone is literally three peas and that's an improvement for you and that's positive and that's such a powerful approach in that it makes people feel good like you Mm -hmm. said when your child said oh I like the mushrooms it's a positive thing and you know we're not going to send off flares because then they're going to get suspicious (laughs) wow mom's getting super pumped because I ate a, a mushroom but it's really about you know, this this whole shift and what blew my mind, again, coming back to research, wow, well, a really <laughs> consistent theme here, but there was a big study that was published just in the last few weeks through the Lancet, I forget the official title of it, but it was a big, big longitudinal um, evaluation of diet and the connection between diet and health globally. And it, it made headlines, you know, a lot of stuff was a bit distorted as research news tends to be, but the big tagline that showed up everywhere was about 11 billion lives could have been saved. Deaths could have been prevented by simple dietary adjustments Mm -hmm. globally. And essentially, this is just restating what we already know, that the connection between what we eat and our overall health. But what was more interesting to me was the fact that, yes, you know, everyone needs to be eating more fruits and vegetables, and we know global diets and the problems and so on. But what they concluded was um, that actually approaches to shift this imbalance in the way we're eating and, and how it's affecting people, that these huge international research team concluded that what we should really be focusing on is not trying to stop people from eating the sugary, salty, processed foods, even though we all know we want people to eat less of that. But the point is that's such a challenging task to even envision how, you know, we're up against big food and advertising and millions and billions of dollars, but that the researchers themselves concluded that the best approach to move in the direction we want to is to be simply focusing on helping people to add more of the fruits and the vegetables right. and the positive. And I was sitting in my little chair going, yes, because that's the approach that Rainbow Plate has been taking since day one, because it's it's positive and it's it's something easier for people to embrace rather than saying, you really should stop eating all of those things. That's very complicated. And yes, we want that to happen. But if you start moving in this direction that's positive, and if people start to, within their available capacity of budget and, and time and everything, if they're able to gradually start making that plate a little bit more colorful, and and if it's Katie and, and chicken nuggets, or if it's a you know, McDonald's hamburger, whatever they're already eating for the reasons they are, but putting some more of that other stuff on the plate bit by bit, then we're, we're gradually making this shift. And what happens over time is that other stuff does tend to kind of tail mm-hmm. off. And, and it's a really, it's kind of a mind shift in how we're trying to make this happen. And, and I believe, and you know, it seems to be supported that it's it's the right way to be perceived. The research makes a lot of sense to me. It's exactly, I mean, I teach goal setting and 
what you're saying is exactly what I teach is don't use negative goal setting. You know, don't focus on what you don't want to do because that's what you're thinking about and that's what your brain is going to lead you to. If you're saying, I can't have this, I can't have this, I can't have this. Well, suddenly you can't figure out why you're craving this and that because that's what you're focused on. Instead, focus on, I'm going to add more of this. I'm going to eat more apples or whatever it is and add that to what you're already doing. Make it small. We talk about nudges. You know, I I remember also, you know, this whole thing with the approach that's out there in in the field, so to speak, of the newly minted nutrition professional. If you go to many of those websites, one of the standard offerings in terms of my services is the kitchen clean out. You've probably seen it. And, And with the best of intentions, practitioners will come into your house and go through your cupboards and your fridge and your pantry and and take get away all rid the good of stuff. All <laughs> of the things that you've been living on comfortably, your your repertoire, your comfortable foods and everything else, and and rip you down to your your skivvies and and say now you should be doing all this. That's very overwhelming for people, and and it's very emotional. Uh, I remember meeting with a it was actually a director of a school that we ended up doing a lot of work with, and she said, "Oh my goodness, yeah, what you're saying makes so much sense. We had that experience. We hired a nutrition professional, and she came in and she did all this stuff, and she took." everything out of our cupboards and replaced it with all these other foods and gave us all these books that we were supposed to be following and everything else. And and then she left and my husband and I looked at each other and we were just like, oh dear. And she said, we went out, we bought a bottle of wine and salami and said, forget it. Like it was just, it was just too much. And, and so I think that, you know, in whatever field we're working in, in order to move people, if people want to move their diet or their behaviors from here to there, I believe that the best approach and the sustainable approach is to help people themselves take small steps in that direction. Mm-hmm. Because if you take one small step and, it, and it's sustainable, then you feel comfortable making the next step and so on and so forth. And and that is very much what, what Rainbow Plate is all about. It's just moving, meeting people where they're at being very positive in the approach and gradually shifting to this, to this direction. I was, you know, as with many people, I was over the moon when the new Canada's food guide came out. Oh yes. Um, For so many reasons, but at bare minimum, the image came up on the screen and I was just like, the new Canada's food guide's a rainbow plate. Just take a look. It's, it was a much needed, well overdue change. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's something that I, you know, can really comfortably and happily align with my vision and my philosophy and all the work that I've been doing. And it's it's been really exciting to now see that, you know, it's it's a very easy connection to make for those people I work with who who need that to be aligned. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, behind, it's the approach I've always worked with anyways, but to see that our government is is stating that as the approach and the philosophy is really great, including, you know, not just the visual, visual and this concept of having a colorful, vibrant plate loaded with fruits and vegetables, but, but actually acknowledging in writing that the concept of eating together with other people is important and enjoying food and eating, you know, preparing a lot more of our foods ourselves at home and all of those basic principles uh, that are just as important as how many milligrams of vitamin B12 we get every day, you know, and all those things that, that the average person is really not interested in. And and so one tends to lead to the other. Yeah, it's yeah. like when the weather guy puts up all the colors. I don't know what that means. Exactly. Um, yeah. So tell me about the educator toolkit then, because yeah. we keep sort of talking about it exactly. and then moving away. So after after seven years of diligently delivering workshops, on the literally on the ground, sitting on the floor with thousands of children, I think it's about 16,000 kids who've been through Rainbow Plate Workshops since we started and the feedback is off the charts and I am the timing couldn't be better because on Friday um, a research article 
that was done uh, evaluating Rainbow Plate's classroom-based workshop with kindergarten kids was published in a peer-reviewed journal online. The Journal of Child Nutrition and Management, spring issue, Google it. Um, And basically that was a piece of research we did with Ryerson University in 2016. And that research was was legitimate, peer-reviewed research, you know, ethics approval, statistically significant results that literally showed that children's experience in this workshop uh, not only uh, resulted in them self-selecting a greater amount of fruits and vegetables. We literally coded children, weighed and measured plates, video, like photograph. We really did a very quantitative analysis. So the research showed that after this type of experience, kids help themselves to more fruit and vegetables when given the opportunity to do so. Mm-hmm. And they also ate more fruit and vegetables. Um So you step back as a business person and say, okay, we now have that final magic piece, the evidence that this works. How do we reach more children with this? How does this really proven approach that's backed by research change the world? And so as an as an organization, being that that group that is physically running around trying to touch each child individually it's limiting in terms of how many kids you can reach. And so we made the decision to pivot. We took all of the elements of our programming and our workshops, and we created a toolkit um, so that people who work with children can implement this themselves. And now the effort is really about getting that toolkit into the hands of all the people who work with children. So the toolkit itself is targeting what we call the early years. Um, so more ECE than elementary school. So like zero to five-ish? Zero to, actually zero to to six, zero seven, to six because seven. in fact okay. it actually is very relevant still to kindergarten kids and I just met with a teacher the other day who we worked with in his grade five and six classes and he said oh I can see using this he's bought a toolkit and he just said I can completely see how I can use this still with my, my higher grades but, the, but if you get deep into some of the technical pieces it is very much geared towards sort of preschool mm-hmm. you know kindergarten grade one and so on um, and rather being a how to deliver this workshop guide it's a binder um it's packed with about 120 pages of content beginning with sort of the background about the philosophy and the approach and all the stuff we've been talking about and tips for talking with kids around food and then what it is is a whole range of experiences and activities and ideas in in the language of the toolkit we talk about it being like a pantry that individual educators and adults can pick and choose from um, the recipe that works for them Mm -hmm. and so you know in fact because we pivoted to really focus on ECE I worked with some consultants from ECE um, in George Brown and other professionals around around the city uh, and actually learned a bit more about the pedagogy and how e- early childhood education works, which is very much uh, different from sitting down with 25, you know, four-year-olds and doing one experience together. The ECE world is very much about child-directed learning in small groups or individual-directed mm-hmm. learning. And so there's this huge range of activities that an educator can facilitate with an individual child or small groups of children, but it all comes back to this notion of sensory exploration that we talked about and and enabling children to develop their own connections with all of this, this healthy food that we're talking about. So their actual specific ideas for not only presenting the concepts and introducing the concept of being a rainbow, it's called the Rainbow Food Explorers Educator Toolkit. And so how to how to inspire children to be rainbow food explorers and use all their senses and use positive and descriptive language around food and, and to really have multiple opportunities 
to get up close and personal with fruits and vegetables. Uh, and then what we did is, is sort of the other piece is recognizing that food connects everything, as we know, um, and to find ways of weaving food and food experiences throughout all the elements of early childhood curriculum. So we designed, you know, pages and pages of experiences, curriculum ideas for educators to use, ranging from um, literacy to numeracy to science to art to what we call real world experiences, which would really be sort of social studies, which talk about everything from where food comes from to food waste and local foods and all that. But, but pages and pages of activities that can all be used using fruits and vegetables and weaving them. So we have counting and language experiences using fruit and vegetables and all of those things. Um, so all of that content. And then we've actually included a rainbow of 30 different uh, sensory cards. So each one of these cards is about a particular fruit or vegetable. And it gives uh, an educator all the ideas around how they might inspire children to explore and experience that particular food. Um, ranging from vocabulary to sort of possible discoveries you might find about the shapes of the leaves and, and things to look at and the number of seeds and all the rest of it. So we've sort of mapped that out on these kind of removable, wipeable sort of plastic cards that, that educators can play with. And P.S., we got a lot of these ideas from focus groups with educators saying that would be the way that I would want to use it. Um, and so we made 30 of these cards of different fruits and vegetables. Um, and they also have on the back sort of all these different prompts using all the senses for educators to be sitting with a small child or a couple of children as they're playing with strawberries or what have you um, and exploring them. So ways that they can be open-ended and, and prompting this kind of joyful sensory-based exploration. Um, so that's all packaged up together in a binder that we have we are now promoting and, and supporting with actual uh, experiential workshops for educators. So I've been going into different organizations that have bought the toolkit already and doing workshops with their staff saying here's how you might here's here's getting a sense of what really it's food literacy and sort of what is food literacy but what does that look like for the children I work with and what are some of the visions that I might have for inspiring kids with food and here's how this resource might support that uh, and then actually getting adults playing around with food so that they can see for themselves just the magical discoveries around around these foods and also sparking the ideas for, oh my goodness, we could start with a cabbage and we can get into discussion of everything from patterns to the way foods grow to leaves to to counting, you know, and, and the, the ideas just spiral and it's been really, really powerful. So, so as a business model, um, that's kind of the big focus right now is saying we have the opportunity to reach so many more people mm -hmm. um, as opposed to an organization that's really boots on the ground going in and, and delivering all these programs. The irony is, is that I'm getting phone calls and, and emails still from schools and their organizations saying, please, can't you come and do the workshops for us? You know, cause they're so powerful and they've been so positive. And for many professionals, you know, we, it's like a turnkey solution where we come in and we bring all this food and we do this whole thing. We set it up and we take it all down and, and then we go. And so I've still, you know, I think the language on the website now said we've put the workshops on hold um, and, and I'm going to look at, the possibility of going back to delivering them but what's been mind-blowing and so so beautiful for me is is the response that the toolkit has been receiving in this approach i've shipped toolkits as far away as australia already in the u.s in the uk there's a woman in ireland who wants to be in charge of 
reaching all of the UK and, and sort of spearheading that. We're talking about that. We'll see. And 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 the feedback has been so positive. Uh, what's also been really cool for me is that while this toolkit was really created as a resource for early childhood educators, and and my vision is that every early childhood education facility, every childcare center, and daycare, and preschool, and you know kindergarten classroom has one and, and has adults working with it. Um, other professionals have been finding it so valuable. In particular, a lot of uh, professionals who work with children uh, with with exceptionalities, so mm-hmm. children with, on the autism spectrum and with um, ADHD and so on, because they often have sensory issues around food and right. feeding. And despite the fact that I really haven't done a good enough job yet getting this out there on social media and marketing it, I'm sort of trying to get that happening now. People are finding it organically and reaching me and and ordering co- copies online and and I've been shipping them out. So I'm I'm really feeling so confirmed that this is really what I should be doing now. And it's a way of this really powerful and positive approach reaching children everywhere. I love it. I love everything you're doing. Um, Thank you. I mean, I love the fact that it is evidence-based because of course, um, working in healthcare, mm-hmm. you know, we mm-hmm. we do obviously put value on evidence. Yes, I, you know, I always preach on the podcast that anecdotal and subjective information yes. is still super important to me, but having the science backing it yeah. um, definitely does give it some weight. And I love that when you're designing the toolkits, you actually spoke to the people on the front lines you did the focus groups so that you know this is stuff that kids are going to respond to the ece said so they know what they're talking about and and i can tell you just to add another plug uh, what made me feel so excited was that as the evolution of the toolkit was underway uh, i met with some people at george brown college in their ece program and they basically said before the toolkit was even completed we want it for our childcare program. Mm-hmm. And so as of today, the, the Rainbow Food Explorers Toolkit is already in practice in all 12 of George Brown's ECE lab schools where they're training health professionals. And they're actually using it now in the curriculum at the college as they're training uh, ECE professionals themselves. So they're using it as a, resor- as a resource in the classroom for those students who are then going to go out and become ECE professionals. Mm-hmm. So it's become the sort of the resource that they're using for the food experience part of their training. And that makes me super proud. It's awesome. Um, and it's also, yeah, it's, it's been get really getting um, some broad acceptance and, and implemented by, by sort of leaders in the field of, of early childhood education. So that's something that says to me that I think we're on the right path with it. I think you are. And Thanks. before I give you an opportunity to sort of give everyone your info and how to find you and whatever, sure. I, I don't even know how to categorize this episode. Like listening to her talk, you are <laughs> like, you're the mom, you're the healthcare expert, you're the entrepreneur. Like we have different series on the podcast. Right. We have a whole series called Hang In With Entrepreneurs. You fit. We have a whole series called like under the sheets and getting people's backstories. And I think your backstory is really cool how Mm -hmm. you just, like me, just were obsessed with food. And so um, if there's anybody listening who also gets like really excited about this, like I do, uh, where can they find you? Maybe give us a plug for your website. Absolutely. So the website obviously is a great great place to start and it's just rainbowplate.com. Okay. Uh, That's the website. I am on Facebook, Rainbow Plate and Twitter. Uh, the, the Twitter for Rainbow Plate is actually 
R-N-B-O-W plate, because there's another organization, which I think is kind of dormant, that has the actual rainbow plate Twitter, but you'll find it, uh, and Instagram as well. Uh, and I'm reachable, obviously, by email, janet at rainbowplate.com, or from the website itself, it takes you right to hello at rainbowplate.com. And if, if anyone's actually inspired enough to go and want a copy of the toolkit already, there's there's a, a click buy now button right on the website. There's a tab uh, that literally talks in detail about the toolkit itself and has a direct link to purchase online if anyone's even interested or if anyone is interested as you can tell I love talking I love speaking working <laughs> with working with parents or prof- health professionals and educators uh, and it's a lot of what I do is speaking to groups uh, ranging from small informal chats like this to giving keynotes at, at conferences I've been invited to, to speak at a at a provincial uh, early childhood edu- to do the keynote at a provincial conference in the fall which I'm really looking forward to and have done everything in between I've also I've also done actually a lot of corporate uh, PD over the years and so that's another whole piece so but find me on the website I think and through the social media channels and if anybody out there is is excited as as you said and this resonates with with you I would love to hear from people because one of my other big visions uh, and I still haven't quite figured out the best way to do it is to sort of help build a virtual community around people who are who are jazzed by all of this and who feel mm-hmm. that this is the work they want to be doing and we're starting with looking at okay people who have the toolkit already can we create a virtual community where people can share experiences and best practices and ideas oh my goodness we did this really cool thing today with our children and I want to make sure that we can sort of find a platform for people to just be positive and share and collaborate and create new ideas so love to help you know, connect people who have have a similar mindset. I think that's a lot of what I believe in as well. Well, so do we, obviously. Obviously. (laughs) Uh, You have anything else? You've been quiet over there because you don't care about food. I've been quiet because, (laughs) I'm not going to lie, because I think in listening to all this, it just starts to make me realize like why I have a relationship with food the way I do now. This whole time, I've just been fascinated. I'm like, this is probably answering a whole bunch of questions for me that I didn't even know existed. Wow. Yeah, that's why I've been kind of quiet. I've been like waiting to what you guys are talking about. (laughs) (laughs) And then reflecting back on, you know, my adolescence in my childhood and the relationship with food there and everything else. Yeah. All right. Well, we might have some work to do. (laughs) Well, anyway, thank you for coming and hanging out. This has been very informative. And also for me, you know, not to pat myself on the back again, but this has been so awesome for me. Validating really to know that like what I have been doing with my girls to try to make sure that they do have a healthy relationship Mm -hmm. with food. I never want them to worry about what they're eating. Mm -hmm. I never want to hear either of my kids say they're on a diet. I don't use those kind of words. So I, I love what you're doing and you'll probably hear from me a lot more now that I know you and well I mean I feel that we have a we're very like-minded as I think so well Mark told me that right from the beginning he He told me that he's like you got to talk to this woman I'm like okay and and honestly thank you for inviting me in it's such a great chance to share a little bit you know it's always great when you when you talk and talk about what you do it helps you really crystallize some of those ideas Mm -hmm. and it's helped me reflect back a little bit and uh and hopefully to share that with the people who tune into your podcast and and see if it connects with anybody out there as well i've really i've loved chatting with you thank you so much thank you right on right on well thanks for hanging it's been good you guys have been listening to two massage therapists in a microphone peace